and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teachings as his godly profession. Class teacher Doug Brady has taken a step in the middle of the study of the book of 2 Timothy to discuss the importance found in apostasy. Churches everywhere are caught up in the apostasy, which includes taking away the blessing of God upon us as believers. Today's lesson is a good example of this, and you will certainly want to have your Bible ready as we go through a number of passages discussing this problem. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. And each week we have new people coming to our class as they find Doug's teaching to be deep and easy to understand. We start the lesson at 9.15, but the period of time before that is a good time for great fellowship. We invite you to visit our class if you are in the area. Well, Doug has taken the podium and is ready to begin the lesson, so let's find a good seat and prepare ourselves for this lesson titled, the Coming Apostasy, Part 4. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Last week, as we looked at this topic of apostasy, we came to see that believers have two responsibilities. Do you remember what the first one was? To be watchmen, exactly, Eddie. We're to be watchmen. Now, I want you to think about that. To be watchmen... We have to learn how to recognize deception. Recognize deception. Sometimes you also can find somebody who has built-in recognition, if that word said correctly. For example, if I'm concerned a little bit about New Age stuff, you know who I'm going to talk to? I'm going to talk to Vera, because she came out of New Age into being born again and Christian. And so she knows and can recognize the way they talk, the things they said, the vocabulary, the way they do. Julie was in a, in a younger days, was in a charismatic church. And she's learned how to recognize the way they think and the way they want to kind of subtly uh, move in. I can tell you, I spent a year down in Austin with a roommate who was a Mormon. No, a Mormon. <laughs> Excuse me. I made a mistake, but I learned a little bit. Now, in in this respect, we need to learn to recognize, but we also, secondly, have to watch vigilantly. Uh, We can't be asleep at the wheel, so to speak. We have to watch and listen and hear the things, and we have to be prepared to warn when we recognize the leaven. And if we don't warn, what happens? The blood is on our hands. Yes, we are responsible. I tell you that we were members for 10 years in North Carolina, and you're the one in the light joined your class that was called back to the Little Creek Church. It was a secret church, and it was a feel-good church. And it's a merchant church. Now, the second thing, we, we're really, the second thing I want to talk about are the second responsibility we have, besides being watchmen. Can anybody tell me what the second thing is? Warriors. We're going to talk about being a warrior today and next Sunday, and maybe the Sunday after that. We'll see how far we get. But some people question, now wait a second. God's a God of love. He is not a God of warfare. We're not, he's not Mars. Well, if you read in Revelation chapter 19... When he is riding his horseback with all of us following him, he's not coming to kiss the Antichrist. He's coming to slay him. And he, but what about us in the church age of the age of grace? Are we really at war? Well, if you really want to answer that question, it's very simple. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, it says these things. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You notice, it doesn't say attacks. It says schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. The evil day is when the apostasy is coming, and it is coming now, and it's going to try and overwhelm us, and we need to understand that. Now, it should be clear that the Bible teaches us that we are at war. And to fight a war effectively, I want you to think about this just a second. Chris, if when you were a lot younger, our country went to all-out war, like World War II, and you went down and you said, I'm going to join the Marines. You went to the recruiter's office, and they said, sign right here, son. You sign, would they just give you a uniform and say, you're going over to Europe, and here's the next boat? What would they do? They got to train you to fight. Well, you know what? We tend to think about this. Well, fighting, that's physical. No, it's not. Not the fight we're in. It's spiritual. That's what he just said in this passage. We don't fight against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual fight. How do you fight spiritually? What do you do? Well, you're going to find that one of the best explanations for how to deal with apostasy and fight this spiritual onslaught comes from a half-brother of Jesus by the name of Jude. And we're going to be studying Jude at length and unpacking this apostasy. Now, when he describes it in his book, his little short book, he uses very frightful terms. I imagine that there are people in the first century and second century who said, I can't believe that's really going to do, the church is going to do that. The world will do it, but not the church. And they would probably have found it difficult to believe. Uh, But we have to remember, apostasy does not come from outside the church. It comes from inside the church. Now I'm going to quote to you a sort of expert on this matter. I am quoting him with reservation because this is maybe the only thing that he would say that I would ever agree with. But I want you to listen to a guy by the name of Charles Lee Smith. Does anybody know who Charles Lee Smith is? Except from the notes. He founded the American Association for the Advancement of Atheism. He is an atheist. But listen to the things he said. The pulpit is doing a much better job than we are doing. You will no longer see the greatest attack upon the word of God made in the city square where the soapbox orders hold forth. Go to some liberal church today and you will hear the greatest attack on the word of God. And the Bible is being discredited all across America every Sunday morning. I believe there's truth in what he's saying. Although now you may not say go to a liberal church. Go to most churches, and you will find it. And that is what's happening. So let's read first, at length, Jude chapter 1, which is the only chapter in Jude, starting in verse 17. And then we'll come back to the key part and start to unpack it. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last days there will be mockers, following after their own godly lusts. Ungodly lusts. Excuse me, let me stop right there. (laughs) You ought to look up and see what's happening to Bill Hybels. And how he's been removed. And what the reasons were for it. Godly, ungodly lusts. That's not the only one, but perfect example since he was quoted. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, he's talking about this apostasy that's coming. Now, let me ask you something. Causing divisions. What if a group were to get together 
and start praying and start saying that a revival is breaking out in their, where they are in their locale and community. And they say, one of the messages that we have in this Bible is that God loves everyone and that we need to be inclusive. And that includes the LGBT community or whatever the initials are. Would that be a revival? Let me just say real quickly, number one, that there are two great examples of revival in the Bible. The first one is what happened in Nineveh when Jonah finally went there. The second one is what happened in Jerusalem and the 120 came out of the upper room and boom, revival. What was always the start? The Holy Spirit. What was always the second? The word of God being proclaimed. What was always the third? Massive people coming to know the Lord being saved. Well, take those three tests, apply them, and see whether they work. Now, I couldn't wait till the end of the lesson. I'm sorry. Now, let's look now at what he's telling us to do in the face of this apostasy. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up upon your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, we need to understand that we got a little syntax problem here. One of the ways I really learn is that I see that's wrong. And so then I research and find it, no, that's right. And now I learn why it's right. But when I first read this, I thought, no, this is not a good translation here. You see right here, building, praying. It should be keeping, not keep, and then waiting. No. It's a matter of syntax. Now, a lot of us don't know much about syntax, but I want to describe to you. It's really pretty simple. It's the order of words and the way you construct a sentence. In English, you always put the primary verb first and then any participles that are going to elucidate or explain that verb follow. That's the way you do it in English. Let me give you a good example from the scripture. There's Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. Of the following statement, the, the primary verb is make disciples. You could also just translate it disciple. But that's the primary. Then following it, baptizing, which is a participle. Teaching, which is a participle. Both of those are explaining aspects of making disciples. You see that? Now let's go... Why would you put keep down here in the third position when you're putting participles in the first and the second position? Now, I want you to think about that a second. You can do that in the Greek. And there's a reason why you would do it in the Greek. I've got a resident expert who was involved in track in SEC. And Cindy, I need to ask you a question. Let's suppose you weren't the runner, you were the coach. And you're coaching the 880 relay. Four girls, each running 220. What position would you put your fastest girl in? The anchor, the last position. That's the most important one, right? Where would you put your second fastest girl? At first, lead off and get a lead. You see, those are the two most important positions. In Greek... You can put the primary verb later if there's something you want to stress or that is important to do first, even though the primary verb is keep. And so building is the one that's first, okay? This is very important to Jude. Building what? If you are going to be a warrior, you must be trained. The training comes first. So he's going to talk about that first. We're going to talk about that first. And I want you to see it and to understand it, how he's and what he is trying to say. Now, building up, as this word is, is used in, in many of the translation, involves building on a foundation or a partial structure that already exists. 
I'd say one of the most perfect examples of that is you take who in, the man who in my mind is the greatest architect of the Renaissance era. His name is Michelangelo. He was also the greatest sculptor. He may also have been the greatest painter, although some people would say uh, Leonardo da Vinci maybe was that. But do you know the pinnacle of his work architecturally? St. Peter's Basilica. Now, let me tell you, he was not the first architect to take over that work. There were like five or six, you'll see their names in the notes, there's no need me telling you. And number seven was Michelangelo. But he took over and he redrew the plans and especially redrew the plans for the dome that was up there. Now, when I was over there, I learned this and my memories, I can't remember whether the outside of the dome is round and the inside is oblong or the outside is oblong and the inside is round. But whatever it was, he drew the plans for that. They were magnificent. But then he died when he was 71 years old. He died when he was 71 years old. It took 10 years before they could find somebody here with this partially built dome and the architectural plans to complete it. Who could do it? But he was building something magnificent on top of a structure that had already partially been built. You've been saved. That's the foundation. Now God is saying, for this battle, we need to build you up. Now, build you up in what? Now, this is key, and we've got to come to understand this. Your most holy faith. Faith versus the faith. We need to understand what it means in the New Testament. Sometimes it says faith, sometimes it says the faith. It's both the same Greek word, pistuo. One has a definite article in front of it, and one does not. What does faith mean? When it uses faith, that has to do with the trust or reliance or dependence upon the Lord God and His promises. Okay? If you say the faith, that means the truth of God recorded in the Scripture. That's the faith. So what is he talking about here? Let's go to that verse again. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So what is he talking about? Which one? Does it say the faith? That's the key thing. In English, if the definite article was there, you can't say the your most holy faith or you're the most holy faith. Is the definite article there? Absolutely it is. You see, you miss that if you just look in English, I'm afraid. But it is there. The definite article is applying to faith together with those other adjectives and the possessive pronoun. So what he's talking about is the scriptures. You need to build yourselves up upon the scriptures. That's what it means. So how do we do that? Well, we need to talk about that. And, and I want you to see how this is going to work. What did the early church do? Did the early church, after the revival that occurred in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, what did they do? Did they have a New Testament? They couldn't pass out little New Testaments? No, they couldn't. Not even in Greek. They didn't have them. But in Acts 2, chapter 42, it says this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What's the lead? The apostles' teaching. They were learning from the apostles. Now, I want you to understand, their learning is a little different. When you're sitting here today, you can take notes, right? Could they? No, they didn't have a surplus of parchment, and parchment was expensive. So were animal skins. And to be able to take notes and, you, you know, the charcoal or ancient forms, it just didn't work. You had to learn it in your mind and ask God to burn it down into your soul. And that was the way they would learn. Let me tell you here, I can't remember how to say the word. It, it escapes me all the time. It's like a collusion. Colloidal, some, anyway, it's a Greek 
way of thinking where you put the most important thing at the first and the most, second most important thing at the end, and then you put the middle stuff is the less important. And that's what this is. The most important is the teaching. The second most important is the prayer. And you're going to see Jude hits those one-two in his, in his statements here. So that was what it was important, the apostles' teaching. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy in the second chapter? He says, be diligent. That is how you should study. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. If we want to fight back apostasy, we must know the word of God to accurately handle the word of truth. You know, if a spirit comes to Julie and tells her, you need to become a pastor, she doesn't know uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, that sounds good to me. I would like to do that. I think I could uh, be a good pastor. You know? And let's suppose she could be a really good pastor. Should she do that? No, the Bible says no. And you follow the Bible. That's how you fight apostasy. You say, that's not what the scripture teaches. Allah and El Shaddai are not the same person. Allah and Yahweh are not the same person. Yes. In that, in, in that context, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, I understand, is kicking out Saddleback Church because... Which was Rick Warren's church, was. And, and four others. Because they're allowing women pastors. But let me tell you, that is something that Satan is going to try and bring into the church, and he's going to teach you that you need to... Yes, Julie. Bring it back again in June or whenever they... And I'm telling you, it's going to be dividing, oh, yeah. and a lot of the Baptist churches are on board with it, and it's going to... It's, you see, it's apostasy. A lot of uh, Julie's saying that they're going to try and bring it back, this issue again, in June with the Southern Baptist Convention. And, you know, gosh, I could say something and I would get in serious trouble, but I'm not going to. Let's look at this. Let's go on. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, when you look at that, most of that we can understand rather clearly, but these first two, living and active. What in the world does that mean, living and active? Well, what we're talking about is a sword. When I was a kid, I loved sword fighters, especially the guy known as the fox, Zorro, exactly. And I love Z's, you know. But the trick or the key of a good swordsman is that that blade becomes one with his body. And it does what he wants it to do. So he is in control of it completely. What we're talking about here is a different kind of sword. A sword that is alive in addition to the swordsman being alive. And the sword now has helping to direct the swordsman as to how to use it, where to parry, where to thrust, where to do those things. And this is what is going on. If you look at this word living, it means having breath, being real life. It was the same concept as Jesus used when he was talking to the Samaritan woman and saying living water, having a vital power in itself and exerting the same on the soul. Let me read that to you again. It's on five. Having vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. That's what that means. Now, the next word, active. What does that mean? Explosive. I think it's a little different than that. Let me tell you why I think that, Chris. When I looked it up, I looked it up in several lexicons. And each lexicon, what it said, it means active, this Greek word, energes. But energes supplies something that we have an English word for it, right, Chris? Energy. But you look at it, it's two words in the Greek. When, you, when you're looking at a word and it, and it just gives you the meaning that's, that it says in the in the scripture, and that's the only meaning it gives. Go back and look how that word was constructed in the Greek. 
uh, and you look at that, if you have the right program, you can see that it starts with this word in, which means, or n, which means in, in English, in, in English. The next word, ergon, means business, employment, that's which one is occupied. What is it saying? This sword is in business. In the business of what? Carving up the enemy. Exactly right. That's the business it's in. So, we need to see that. This is the sword. We need to use this sword. You know, I went down the street. Julie probably's not going to like me to say this. Uh, a while we, we found an estate sale. And there was a $3,500 pair or set of samurai swords. But the people who were selling it, they didn't know, and they had a price of $250 on it. Well, I bought it for $175. (laughs) And then I thought, you know, I'm going to watch some videos here, and I'm going to learn some tactics. And uh, one of the moves I learned is you take that sword, and that other sword was coming in there slicing right down. And you simply step to the side and parry like that, and as it goes down... You've got them, and you go down their head instead of them cutting your head in half. You learn things like that. Now, Julie made me stop doing that. I don't do that anymore. She doesn't like swords being swung around in her house. You know, you could hit things. But anyway, I wanted to show, tell you that so that you see that we need to be trained if you're going to use a sword. Just having a sword, just having a gun, just having any, a knife... You're not good. Yeah, car, you're not any good at using it as a weapon until you train with it. The scripture has to be trained into us. And that's what we need to do. And I want you to to understand that. Now, Peter was warning his readers about the coming apostasy. And he explained to them the importance of building ourselves up in the faith. In 2 Peter, starting in chapter 1, verse 19... So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which uh, you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that there is no prophecy of Scripture as a matter of one's own interpretation. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men... Moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now, first of all, I want you to understand. He is talking about a coming apostasy in the context of this verse. And what does he describe it? Darkness. Darkness. That's how he describes it. Now, there's a little word at the end I want you to see. Moved by. It's a very interesting word to me. Now, Vera... You have spent a good deal of time, have you not, on a sailboat? And you and Mark have sailed a lot of different places, not just across White Rock Lake, but I mean serious places out in the ocean, right? Is there ever a situation where all of a sudden there's no wind? Called doldrums, right? This word is talking about a situation where a boat may happen to be in doldrums, and all of a sudden you can hear the wind coming. And the sails start to billow. And pretty soon now the sailboat starts to move. When you're in the doldrums, it doesn't matter which way you're guiding it. It's going nowhere. But when the wind comes and fills the sails, then the sailboat moves. That's this word. What he did is said the Holy Spirit, like the wind, came and filled these people who were writing it and moved them to write what they wrote. Interesting way of saying that, isn't it? And that's what he did here, and that's what this is talking about. And I want you to see that the Holy Spirit has made it clear through Peter. Number one, the Word of God is reliable. Number two, it will enlighten the hearts in darkness, because apostasy brings darkness. And number three, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is therefore reliable. Look again at where we see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be. Now, I want you to look at this just a second, this verse. And I've tried to blew out these words. These are three separate things, but also in power. That's not the Holy Spirit. 
in this passage. Then also in the Holy Spirit it came, and with full conviction. Now, let's look back at this, starting with the third one, with full conviction. If you know the Word of God, you can stand with firm conviction, just like Elijah stood with conviction. The Holy Spirit, if the gospel comes from him, he can use that in other people's hearts, whether believers or unbelievers, to move them. But where is the power coming from here that it's talking about? The Word of God. The Word of God. It is alive. It is active. It never returns to me void, God says. Now that's something you haven't heard too much of. We have two power sources. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Now some will say, well, no, you don't only have one because the Word of God's power source came from the Holy Spirit who filled the sails. Well, I see it as two different things here that we need to recognize. The Word of God can give you power because it is alive and active in the business of what it's supposed to be doing. Yes? If you don't know the Word of God, you don't have power. That's right. You don't. What Kathy said was, if you don't know the Word of God, you don't have power. And it's, what does the Holy Spirit use many times? The Word of God. And these are two sources. And, you know, you've heard this darkness concept. I, I hate to be picking on Vera, but, you know, she's just such a perfect example today. Not only do you sail, you also fly, don't you? Now, when storms are difficult or it's real cloudy, you can't fly, can you? Or if you have instrument rating, you can. Are you instrument rated? Yes. She can fly. Now, let's see something here. Do we have a picture? That's flying inside a storm bank. That's what you see. You don't know for sure whether you're going up or down, left or right, and you become disoriented very easily. When you get in that situation, can you defend on, depend on your senses, Vera? What do you have to depend on? Your instruments. When this darkness from apostasy comes, where do you find your instruments? The Word of God, exactly, Don. That's it. That's what we need to come to see. We have to understand these are the instruments. If you don't, you'll be confused. You'll be thrown off the wrong way. You'll lose direction. And I think this is a great analogy. You know, Peter couldn't use this analogy. He's never flown in a storm before. Yes. You also follow people that are telling you false things. You do. False sense. So, what I need you to see is we must remember that the Bible is unique and ever so different from any other book that's ever been written because God wrote it by means of his chosen scriveners. Now, the next thing is our training as a warrior. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at this passage again in Jude. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, it talks about praying all through the Scriptures, but does it talk about praying in the Holy Spirit? Praying in the Holy Spirit. When I first thought, saw this, I thought, is this really maybe an, an anomaly? What does this really mean? Well, praying in the Holy Spirit is quite different than most people's bedtime prayers. You know, prayers they say by rote. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the... Lord, my soul. No, this, this is prayer that reaches inward and touches the very heart of God. It reaches inward and touches the very heart of God. This is prayer that God joyously listens to. It's the kind of prayer that involves the Holy Spirit speaking through the believer by way of Jesus Christ to the Heavenly Father, the Most High God. That's what it is. This concept is foreign to most believers. It's not spoken of in the church very often. And like I said, maybe it's just an anomaly here. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. Could this be the only place? Well, this is a spiritual warfare passage, right, that we're looking at. Can we think of another spiritual warfare passage in the Bible? Well, we just read one, didn't we? Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at that real quick. In Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 14, you'll see it talks about the warfare and the weapons. It says, the breastplate of righteousness. Some of you have studied, we've studied this before. The gospel of peace, that's your footgear. Wait, I left one out, didn't I? 
The belt of truth is the first one. The belt of truth. Now, in verse, oh, here we go. So the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, and then comes in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then, well, let me ask you this. What do you think Paul is doing as he's writing this? Yeah, and he's that Roman soldier he's chained to, right? And he sees all the armaments, and so he is using them in this analogy. I'm going to suggest to you that that's not the end of the weapons, but that the analogy breaks right there. Let me give you an example. Let's take a squad of American soldiers, and they're camped out high in a mountain up in Afghanistan. And down in the valley below, there is a pass, very narrow pass, and they are sent there to guard that pass. Well, early in the morning, the squad leader is awakened by the guy who was on watch and said, you've got to come see this, Captain. And he comes and looks, and yeah, there is a line of enemy insurgents coming. There's several tanks, number of armored carriers with 50 cows, maybe 300 to 600 enemy insurgents. And he does two things. He says, wake everybody else up, and he grabs a weapon out of his knapsack. Now, are they intended to go down there to the pass and stand there and prevent those guys from coming through? No, no. no, he takes that weapon in his hand, a satellite phone, and he contacts home base and he says, this is what's going on. He gives them the direct coordinates and they wait. Now, there's four fighter bombers circling up above the clouds. And as those people get right there in that pass, he says, Hit them now. And they come screaming, those planes come screaming out. The first of them, it's rockets. And they knock out the, the tanks and the armored carriers. Then they, they swing around real quick, come back through that way, and, and let out their, their payload of bombs, and they're destroyed in it. And finally, they come back for a strafing run, and they're all dead. But what was the weapon? The satellite phone. Without the satellite phone, that doesn't happen. Now look at verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times... In the spirit, which this in view, to be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all saints. Now, notice, alert, just like the watchman, the warrior has to be on the alert. But go back, in the spirit. That is key. That's what we should be about. How do we do this? How do we pray in the spirit? Well, let's talk about that. We've talked about how to build ourselves up into the your most holy faith. How do we pray in the spirit? Well, I think what we've got to do is notice first, that's a key weapon for us. In fact, that is probably one of the most powerful weapons we have other than the Bible. But look at an example. I found, I think a good example of this is found in Daniel chapter nine, verses three through four. He starts out saying, so I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, that's Yahweh, my Elohim and confessed. Now we could go on. We studied this when we were studying Daniel, but I want you to talk about it. First of all, I gave my attention to now I'm going to get myself in trouble here because it's going to be repeated back to me a number of times. If Julie comes in and says, I need to talk to you, Doug, and I say, go ahead, but my mind, my eyes are still glued on the television, have I given her my attention? Uh, what if I'm studying on a lesson and something she can, I really need to talk to you, Doug? I say, go ahead. As I'm, nope, you, you're in agreement on that, Don? There are lots of consequences you're going to receive. <laughs> I'm sure you're living proof of that. But what the first thing is, he put himself in a position where he could give full attention. No, nothing was going to interfere with him. That's, I think, easier for Daniel to do than it is for us to do now because we have so many other things that want to... I mean, Daniel didn't have to worry about the phone ringing. He didn't have to worry about a text coming in or an email or anything like that. Somebody playing a television too loud or radio too loud, or music too... He didn't have to worry about it. He's giving your attention. Now, you look at that next phrase, prayer and supplications. 
Aren't, isn't prayer and supplications the same thing? Well, you're beginning to understand lawyers, aren't you? The fact is this. All supplications are prayers, but not all prayers are supplication. Let me show you in English, if you were to look up uh, this word supplication, you would see that it speaks of the act of asking God for something in a very humble way. I think the Greek word deasis is even more is even stronger. It says a need, an indigence, a want, a privation. It's something that you greatly need. It's something that is you're doing without, and you're asking God to change that. But you're doing it humbly. And I think that's important to see. Now, we're looking at this. Susan, let me ask you a question first. When, if you were to dress in sackcloth and ashes, that's like a burlap, does that have anything to do with humility? Do you think it does? You would be, you, you know, if I was dressing in sackcloth and ashes, I probably wouldn't want anybody to see me. And I certainly wouldn't want anybody with a phone to see me. But that's humility on the outside, right? Did Daniel do anything to bring about humility on the inside? He fasted. Can fasting bring power to prayer? Now, is there anybody here who would disagree with Susan on that? Does fasting really bring power to prayer? You do? Does anybody know a scripture that would suggest that? Multiple. Well, I'll get you after I tell you the one I found. I'm going to get you to Matthew 17, 14. Well, you're lucky to have somebody who will point things out to you, aren't you? I think the situation here, Don, is this. See, Damaris has moved a little bit away. She's not going to point. You're going to have to rely on Steve now. Not that he's unreliable. Anything religious that I went through in Hell Week going into the fraternity was I experienced sackcloth and ashes and syrup. <laughs> I'm not going to ask anything more about that. I'm going to leave that alone. That's too sticky a subject for me. Now, let's read the scripture. Verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and falling on his knees before him and saying... Is that uh, in humility? Uh, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. And he often falls into the fire and often into water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. That seems awfully strong right there, doesn't it? Unbelieving and perverted. How long shall I be with you? He's talking about his disciples, I think. Have you not got this yet? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. Now, who's the him? It's the demon that came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive him out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to move a mountain. Say to a mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible. Now notice the last line. But this kind, this kind of demon, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, we don't have time to go into a full series on fasting. I'm going to give it to you just a sec. Yes. Line right there. This one only comes out by prayer and fasting. Fasting is missing. In the NIV translation. In the NIV translation, it says, she says it's not there, fasting. No, I've got, I've got it right here. It's not in there. Well, you see how it's, I get in trouble when I say these things, but I always thought NIV stood for the nearly inspired version. But I'm not going to say that because I might hurt some people's feelings. And, you know, being a watchman, I'm all about purple's peaceful feelings, but I'm saying, but this kind does not come out or go out except by prayer and fasting means something to me. You see, when Daniel prayed as he did in chapter 9, he touched the very heart of God. 
This is what we need to be doing. Striving to learn to pray to touch the heart of God. He did. What did God do? He immediately sent a messenger, his number one messenger, Gabriel, to him. Did he give Daniel just the answer to his question? Oh, no. He gave him more than he could ever ask or think to ask, like it says in Ephesians 3.20. He told him about the tribulation and how long it would last. We would not know how long the tribulation was unless Gabriel told Daniel. It's nowhere else in the scripture. He told him exactly to the day when the Messiah would come as the king. He told him these things specifically because Daniel, in his prayer, touched the very heart of God, and that's how the heart of God responds. And we need to know and learn how to pray in the Spirit. And just like any training, it takes practice. Praying in the Spirit means that the Spirit of God leads and guides us in our petition and supplications, but it is even more than that. You know, as we consider prayer, there's some things that foundationally we ought to think through. First and foremost, you know, it is a privilege and an honor to be able to pray to God. Sometimes we take it so lightly. Secondly, it's full of possibilities and potentialities. But it serves as a portal into the very throne room of the Most High God. Look at another example of this and statement of this in Romans chapter 8 verse 26. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. This word helps means to aid in. He's aiding us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that is the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind or intent of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. At its core, praying in the Spirit means prayer with the mind of the Spirit. And when we pray this way, we are praying in accordance with the will of God, which in turn assures that our prayers are being heard by the Most High God and that He will answer them in His way and in His time. And this type of prayer also involves the Spirit of God imbibing our prayers. You know, in Romans 8.16 it says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been somewhere where you've heard somebody praying and that prayer really moves you or touches you? That's not them. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in him and the Holy Spirit in you. Or the Holy Spirit in her and the Holy Spirit in you. Because the, the Spirit illumines your mind and moves your heart and grants you freedom of utterance and liberty of expression. That's what the Spirit does. We should remember... That praying in the Spirit opens our mind to the mind of God. Also praying in the Spirit uh, helps you uh, rebuke when people are praying false scripture. Because I've been in prayer when you're praying craziness and you're just like waiting. Spirit points out it's false. Vera. Shirley was looking for that fasting and prayer in her Bible. She's done an NASB 2020. It's not there. Frank's older NASB has it, the new one does not. It's a manuscript tech tool. Yes, there is a question about that. But if you're looking in Matthew chapter, what was that, chapter 17, in my Bible, I have the New American Standard, it's in there in verse 21. And I quoted, I mean, what I have is a quote of that, but... It may be that if it's a very new, you know, Satan's winning so much, I'm getting tired and sick of it. But let's look at John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you to help you pray. Now, think about this again. Consider, again, the coming darkness of the apostasy. You know, that just looks evil to me. I hate to tell you, but, but if you're in the middle of that, you should be worried. But we as warriors, we're to be about light. What does it say in Matthew 5.16? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They see you living out your salvation. But we are seeing dark storm clouds of apostasy approaching us 
approaching our lives, approaching our nation, our state, our community, our church. And as the darkness begins its onslaught, there's only one way to oppose it, the light. And, you know, you can't blame the darkness for being dark. It's simply doing what darkness does. The only remedy for darkness is light. And you can be a source of light and a beacon of light if you will allow God to shine through you. That's what you need to be about, allowing him to shine through you. What an awesome responsibility that is to be the ones through whom God can shine his divine light and dispel darkness. You're the ones he want to use. And when God's light is allowed to shine unhindered through your life, the darkness around you is being dispelled. It would be like flying through this darkness and then all of a sudden you breach the clouds and you see the light and you know that he's going to come back. That's what we need to be. But this is serious, folks. This isn't something just to play around with. Apostasy is coming to your home. What are you going to do? Should you just be inclusive and say we're accepting everybody's point of view? A warrior. A warrior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, help us to see that we have been enlisted into your army and that we are to be watchmen and warriors. Help us to be ever vigilant. But help us, Father, to get the training and to work to train ourselves, to practice and to understand your word, to study ourselves, to listen to other people, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to do the things we must do to become well-equipped with your word. And help us to learn how to pray in the Spirit. Have your Holy Spirit teach us this and to show us what it's like so that we can understand how to humble ourselves and come to you in such a way that the Spirit prays through us. I pray that you will grant this to us. And then, Father, help us to learn the things we're going to learn next week about keeping and snatching out of the fire and the things that Jude is telling us to do in addition to these two. And I pray all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.